So this evening we're going to be continuing our journey through the hindrances and in that process we'll also be exploring what assists our progress on this path to freedom. But I'm going to start with looking at what gets in the way. And as you may remember last night Gill talked about sloth and torpor being dullness, stiffness, resistance in the body and in the mind. So in other words, an imbalance of energy towards the too low end of the scale. So this evening, to balance it out, I'm going to talk about the next hindrance, which is commonly referred to as restlessness and worry. I've also seen it translated as worry and flurry. But in Pali, the worry part is actually a bit closer to the English word remorse. And so I'll say a little more about that later on. Whichever of those translations we choose, there's still the sense that it involves energy that's unbalanced in the opposite direction. In other words, revved up, overactive, spinning out. So remembering the metaphor of the bowl of water, whereas sloth and torpor is water that's stagnant, still overgrown with algae, the image for restlessness and worry is water that's whipped up by the wind. It's choppy, agitated, stirred up. So, of course, not possible to see a clear reflection. And as some of you may have experienced, especially in the first few days of a retreat, it's pretty common that our energy does tend to swing, at times pretty wildly, between sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry, and back again and back again. So we sink into tiredness and dullness and heaviness and stiffness, maybe actual sleep. And then we jerk awake and we berate ourselves for having been a bad meditator. And in all of that, the mind pretty quickly starts rebelling, maybe even screaming, get me out of here. What was I thinking when I signed up? How many more days are there to go? <laughs> maybe some of you recognize that. And all of that agitation in the mind just saps the energy even more. And so then we sink back into another cycle of sloth and torpor. And then the whole process repeats and maybe repeats and repeats. But eventually we learn how to make space for it. And then the peaks and troughs of the energy, they settle out and aren't quite so dramatic. Now, from what I can tell just from the outside, at this stage in the retreat, most of you seem like you've moved beyond those more intense phases. And if those hindrances are still coming up, maybe they're coming up with a little more subtlety. So tonight I'm going to explore some of the nuances of how restlessness and worry can show up and how we might transmute that scattered, distracted energy into something more skillful, perhaps metaphorically like a clear mountain spring, upwelling with life-giving fresh water. First, though, let's look at restlessness, how it shows up in the body, how it shows up in the mind. I think that one of the reasons that this hindrance shows up so commonly at the start of the retreat is that most of us tend to come in with a bit too much force. We tend to come in making far too much effort and trying too hard to control our agitated bodies and our unruly minds. 
and that very pressure to sit still, rigidly still, and shut the mind up, again, it tends to produce rebellion. The body gets tense and tight and twitchy. And in English, we talk about wanting to jump out of our skin. I don't know if you've had that experience on retreat, but it can be pretty intense. And that intensity sets up restlessness in the mind too. And we start to keep looking at our watch or the clock every few minutes and maybe staring at the bell ringer and just willing them to ring that bell. Or we keep looking at the date on the notice board and counting down every hour, every day. So if you recognize any of those symptoms, that's good. Because again, recognition is always the first most crucial step. Just to be able to recognize, to name, ah, yes, this is restlessness. Restlessness is like this. Just sometimes the recognition of it takes some of the energy out of it. And this is another way that mental noting can be useful. As I mentioned this morning, the part of the mind that is naming the experience is not the part that is in the experience. So each time that we name, for example, restlessness, restlessness, in those nanoseconds, the mind is no longer in the restlessness. And so metaphorically, it's like putting pinpricks, perforating that hindrance cloud. And eventually, that helps it to desolidify and to disperse. So the first step is to name, to know, to note it. And then a second strategy is one we've already emphasized quite a bit here, to relax. Relax the tension that's associated with the hindrance itself as well as any tension that might be coming from the secondary reaction. So I think instinctively most of us, when we encounter an unpleasant experience, our instinct is to clamp down on it or brace against it, push against it, resist it. And usually that has the effect of making it worse. So a big part of the training in relation to any of the hindrances is to not give in to that urge to fight them, but instead give them some room. So make space for the agitated energy of restlessness just to do its thing until it naturally settles down of its own accord. So one analogy that's often used for this is the image of a wild horse. If we put that wild horse in a small corral, it gets even wilder, kicking and bucking. But if we let that horse out into a bigger paddock or a bigger meadow, that same energy is still there, but the impact of it is much less. So how do we actually make that space? We can start with the body. So whenever we recognize the tension, the tightening, the bracing, the contraction, when some hindrances come into play, Right there, we can sit up a little taller. You might even try it now. What's it like if you just sit up a little taller, broaden the shoulders, open the chest, take a few deeper breaths so that the chest expands, the belly softens. 
And so you might physically sense there's a little more spaciousness in the body. Did everybody get a sense of that? It's just a very simple, physical, embodied way of softening the, re the resistance. Sometimes that space in the body doesn't feel like quite enough. And so if the hindrance is really intense, we might open up the eyes and take in the space of the room. So now metaphorically, we're in a bigger paddock, a bigger field. Sometimes even that isn't enough. And it can be helpful to open the awareness beyond the room. If we're outside, sometimes taking in the sky, the vastness of the sky, as I was referring to in the guided meditation this morning, connecting with that spaciousness can put our own small issues into perspective. So we make space in the body, and then we do the same in the mind, just by orienting to kindness, to patience, to gentle perseverance. And again, in terms of the first few days on the retreat, as we know, the conditions in everyday ordinary society for most people are pretty overstimulating, even overwhelming. So it's not surprising that when we first arrive on retreat, we come in with a pretty intense base level of agitation. And it just takes time for our nervous systems to reset themselves. It takes time for us to put down some of the burdens and the complexity of life in contemporary society. And it takes time to slow down from the super fast pace of all our digital devices. We're so used to clicks and swipes and scrolling. And so we have to learn to orient to the slower natural rhythms of day and night, the sunrise and sunset. We can orient to the weather systems passing through, the wind in the trees and the pattering of rain the call of Tui and at night Kiwi, and attuned to the ecology of this whole natural environment that's such a powerful antidote to restlessness and worry, if we can take it in. So perhaps now you have a clearer sense of how physical restlessness shows up. We can take a closer look at the mental aspect of it, namely worry and or remorse. And this evening I wanted to touch into both of those aspects of restlessness because they're both types of mental agitation. But the first one, worry, tends to look to the future and to develop anxiety about what might be happening soon. Whereas remorse is mental agitation about the past, about what has already happened, and usually what we wish had not happened. And I wanted to include worry in this hindrance because it's so pervasive these days. Something about our way of life is creating what feels like an epidemic of anxiety. And I want to highlight just how widespread this is because so many people tend to take their anxiety personally and tend to think it's their personal shortcoming instead of recognizing there is a whole interplay of causes and conditions and systems 
that are impacting all of us individually and collectively. So to be able to recognize anxiety is a key skill and it's not so easy. Maybe because it is so unpleasant and because the agitation of it is so, well, just agitating, it's hard to see it clearly. It's hard to recognize it for what it is. And when I was reflecting on that this evening, I was remembering an example from my own life. A few years ago now, I was invited to be an assistant teacher for the first time at a retreat in IMS in Barry, Massachusetts. And at that point, I hadn't officially been invited into the teacher training program. So I was surprised to be invited by these two teachers to support their retreat. And of course, I wanted to do a good job. So everything went well enough on the first day. But on the second morning, I got up at the usual time and I was heading to the hall to do the sitting. And I realized there's nobody around. Where is everybody? I thought, that's weird. People should be up by now. They should be moving to the hall. And I had this image of the teachers sitting on the stage, waiting impatiently for everyone to come in and how they think what terrible meditators we were. And my mind got a bit caught up in that scenario. And then I thought, oh, well, obviously, bell ringer forgot to ring the bell. So I'd better do it. That'll help support the retreat. <laughs> so I grabbed the bell and I almost was running down the corridors, clanging the bell to try and get people to come to the retreat, to the session. It took quite a while to get around all the dorms and corridors, and I finally got into the foyer of the meditation hall, and then I saw everyone's shoes, and they were all in the hall, and I was half an hour late. And then... I had to go into the hall half an hour late after having run around <laughs> like a mad woman, <laughs> disturbing everybody's meditation by clanging this bell. And then I had to sit on the stage and look at everyone <laughs> looking at me, <laughs> wondering, who is this person? <laughs> so with hindsight... That's just an example of that whole situation arose because I wasn't aware of being anxious. I didn't realize that I was pressuring myself to try and do it right and do it well. And that sort of jammed my frequency and I didn't make good decisions. I took that impulsive action to ring the bell and that, of course, had the opposite effect of what I'd wanted. <laughs> Fortunately, there was no lasting damage. And that's a fairly benign example, but maybe you can think of examples from your own life. I certainly can think of other more destructive ones where anxiety just kind of gets a hold on us and really clouds us from seeing clearly and hinders us from taking appropriate action. And for many people, anxiety can almost take on a life of its own when mindfulness isn't strong. And it can end up in that well-known phenomena of catastrophizing. And this is where the mind just proliferates and spins out into all kinds of doomsday scenarios. 
in a sort of a maladapted strategy to try and preempt those situations from happening. And one of the challenges, I think, particularly with anxiety, is that there's often a deep-rooted and very unconscious belief that we can get rid of the anxiety by solving the problem with our mind. So the mind says, if if I just do X, or if I can just get Y to happen... If I just make sure I have enough Z, then I'll be okay. But how am I going to do X? And what's going to make Y happen? And how much is enough Z? And how am I going to get enough of it? And round and round it goes. And that strengthens the anxiety while not dealing with the actual reality of the actual situation that we're in now. So many of you probably know that famous quote that's attributed to Mark Twain. There have been a great many tragedies in my life, most of which never actually happened. And so again, we recognize that tendency to think the worst. And it's painful to recognize how we do this to ourselves. But unfortunately, even if we understand intellectually what we're doing, at least in my experience, you can't just tell yourself to stop. And more recently, in my own practice, I've been recognizing how the future orientation of anxiety is in some ways an attempt to make the unknowable known, to make the uncertain certain, to make the unpredictable predictable. And perversely, many people would rather imagine a catastrophic situation than open to the truth that actually we don't yet know what's going to happen. It seems like there's something about uncertainty that is deeply challenging to our basic biology. And perhaps in some ways, anxiety is a misplaced strategy for trying to maintain control, trying to get safety and certainty and security in a world that actually can't provide it, in a world that is in flux. And on its deepest level... It connects to our survival instinct. And when I saw that connection more clearly in my own practice recently, that survival imperative, it helped me to have more respect for the power of this primal and biological desire for control. And it also helped me to have more compassion for myself and for all of us living in these vulnerable and finite human bodies with that instinctive movement, recoil from uncertainty. Okay, so what might be some more skillful ways of responding to anxiety? Again, recognizing the symptoms is key, because without recognizing the symptoms, we're likely to be driven by it. And as with most of the hindrances, the physical symptoms of anxiety, pretty unpleasant. I don't know how it is for you, but for me at various times, it can be that churning in the belly or a hollowness in the abdomen, perhaps a tightening in the chest. The breathing becomes shallower. If it's really intense, the hands might be clammy. And then in the mind, those churning, racing, looping thoughts. And one of the challenges of working with anxiety is that 
generally with any of the hindrances, we want to bring the energy out of the head and into the body to stop fueling the agitation in the mind. But with anxiety, the bodily sensations are so uncomfortable, there is usually an unconscious resistance to doing that. And I think that's one reason we stay in the head, that we're unconsciously trying to separate ourselves from the discomfort down here. So when we're working with the hindrance of anxiety, yes, we want to try to come out of the future thoughts, and we want to come closer to the immediacy of our embodied experience. But if mindfulness isn't strong, it could actually be counterproductive to focus on the unpleasant bodily symptoms. So instead, it might be more skillful to bring awareness to those areas of the body where there isn't so much agitation. So the feet in contact with the ground is often a good place to start, just almost borrowing the steadiness of the earth beneath us really letting ourselves feel that. Or in a similar way, maybe the sitting bones in contact with the cushion or the chair. And we can tune into that sense of the body being supported or held, feeling steady. So staying with anywhere in the body that feels somewhat steady or stable, at least neutral. And this is really the beginning training in learning how to soothe the agitation of anxiety. And perhaps one of the most helpful things we can do, especially here on retreat, is to take full advantage of the relative safety and simplicity that's available to us in this environment so that our nervous systems can start to develop a taste for what it's like to be at least temporarily free from anxiety. So Gil and I have been emphasizing this invitation to relax, and that relaxing can happen on deeper and deeper levels as we let go of the need to micromanage every aspect of our practice, as we let go of worry about getting it right or doing it wrong. And as Gil said this afternoon, to let go of the entire concept of mistakes. I think he said there are no mistakes. So can we really take that in? And the other night I encouraged us to notice how does it feel when the hindrances are at least temporarily absent, or at least reduced. And so when anxiety is lessened or maybe gone for a little while, Try not to jump immediately to the next problem to start worrying about. And instead, take a few moments to dwell in that experience of relative ease. Let your whole being rest, open to that calm, contentment, steadiness. Almost as if you're imprinting that experience on your nervous system, because that makes it easier to find again. And eventually, with time, with practice, with training, it starts to become more and more our default setting, and it can replace the anxiety habit entirely. Okay, so anxiety is restless ca restlessness caused by the mind getting caught in afflictive future thinking. And now I'd like to say a little bit about remorse, which is the mind getting caught up in afflictive thinking about the past. 
And usually it involves remembering some unskillful actions that we did or some unskillful things that we said, various types of harm that we may have caused through acting out of ignorance or not seeing clearly. And I think every one of us in this room, except maybe Gil, I don't know, every one of us here (laughs) has done things in the past that we might feel some shame about. (laughs) Yes, maybe I'll leave that aside. We'll come back to that later. But actually in the Buddha's teachings, there's a healthy aspect to shame if it motivates us to clean up our act, so to speak, and to try to do better in the future. What isn't so healthy is the common tendency to identify with our past unskillful actions. In other words, to collapse our whole identity in them, telling ourselves what a horrible, terrible, shameful person we are because of that thing we did or said 10 or 20 years ago. And what's sad for me in some ways when I'm in the teaching role, sometimes people come to me and they want to share or acknowledge a shameful secret that they've been carrying for years and years, something that they've been unable to let go of because they believed it to be so utterly reprehensible. And so far, every time that I've heard a kind of confession like that, the actual thing that the person did was relatively mild. In every case, it was understandable to me why they would have acted in that way at that time. But for whatever reason, the person was unable to forgive themselves and they held on to that secret shame, sometimes for decades before they were able to share it with someone that they trusted and eventually help it to release. Now, hopefully none of you are carrying a burden that big, but even relatively minor things can become disproportionately painful to the extent that we take them personally. And again, this is one of the reasons why I keep emphasizing that the wisest relationship to any of these hindrances is to not identify with them. Don't let any of them consume you and particularly with remorse, don't let your whole identity collapse into that bad thing that you did back then. So I learned from Gill that the word remorse comes from the Latin root that means to chew, to chew again. And it's the same root that we find in the word morsel. So with the hindrance of remorse, it's helpful to notice, are we metaphorically chewing on something? At times, not just chewing on it, but regurgitating it and then chewing on it again. And there's no nourishment in doing that. In fact, it's toxic. So coming back to Gill's framework of how these hindrances might also have their assistances, how can remorse be related to more skillfully so that it becomes onward leading on this path to freedom? So depending on what it is, for some people it is helpful in the example I just mentioned to acknowledge to ourselves, maybe to a trusted confidant, that yes, we have done something unskillful. 
And we might take a little bit of time just to feel into the impact of that behavior on our own being and perhaps onto any other beings that were also affected. But we want to take care not to overdo this step. We don't want to dwell in the pain and get sucked back into identifying with it. We want to try to stay present with it just long enough that it sharpens a sense of resolve not to do that action again in the future. So if you're with someone that you trust, you might name that intention, that resolve out loud, or you might write it down to help it land more fully. And then having taken those steps to clear it, You can give yourself permission to not go back over what happened again and again. And with that kind of clarity, a surprising amount of energy can be freed up. Energy that now becomes a beautiful wellspring, a source of motivation that can refine our commitment to non-harming even further. So we're starting to transform the agitation of restlessness and remorse into a source of nourishing energy that strengthens our capacity to care, to care more fully for ourselves, to care more fully of others, for others. And this new purpose can bring a kind of dignity, a sense of purpose, even a nobility that acts as an antidote to that very common tendency to believe that we're worthless or that we somehow deserve to suffer because of that bad thing that we did. I think this is another reason that some people find it so hard to let go of remorse. They might unconsciously believe that they should be suffering for the harm that they caused and that somehow flagellating themselves is an appropriate response. But suffering is suffering whether it's our own or other people's. And in the Buddha's understanding, any reduction in suffering anywhere is always a good thing. So I wonder if any of us here might find some appreciation in relation to we're all here doing our best to live in alignment with the truth. We're doing our best to see clearly, to act skillfully, to cultivate wisdom and compassion. What an incredible offering to the world. And I like to see if you might begin to take that in because so often the mind's negativity bias has us focus on all the minor transgressions that we've done, all the ways we should be better or different. So as an antidote to that, I like to reflect sometimes on a teaching that the Buddha gave to a layman by the name of Mahanama. And some of you have heard me share this teaching on previous retreats. But I think it's worth repeating because it can help to cut through this often very deeply conditioned tendency to focus on unworthiness. And that can fuel the hindrance of restlessness and remorse. So Mahanama was not a monastic. He was a householder like us. And according to the discourses, he lived in a house that was, quote, dusty and crowded with children. (laughs) And apparently he went to the Buddha and he asked the Buddha to give him some teachings that were suitable for an ordinary person like him. 
who was not a monk. And the Buddha said, sure, or words to that effect. He said to Mahanama, contemplate six things every day, as often as you remember. And he said to Mahanama that if he did this, he would develop the kind of rapturous joy that supports deep concentration, samadhi to arise, and that in turn leads to clear seeing, to transformative insight. So the six things that the Buddha advised Mahanama to contemplate focus on good qualities. So firstly, focus on the good qualities of the Buddha. Secondly, the good qualities of the Dharma. Then the good qualities of the Sangha. And then, this to me is where it gets really interesting, he said Mahanama should contemplate his own generosity and then contemplate his own good qualities or virtues. And then lastly, the good qualities of the devas or heavenly beings. And what interested me most in that list was the Buddha's instruction to Mahanama that he should recollect his own generosity and his own good qualities. And I don't know about for you, but for me, when I first read that, I found that pretty challenging. It brought up a fear that, well, that would make me conceited or self-righteous. But as the Buddha pointed out to Mahanama, openly acknowledging our strengths without taking ownership of them, without creating an identity out of them, turns them into a resource, something that helps us to develop confidence on this path. So as I said, when I first read this teaching, I found it a little confronting. But I thought, well, I'll put aside my reservations and give it a try. And I did assume I'd have to take care that it didn't make me feel inflated or special or superior in some way. But I actually found that the opposite was true. To my surprise, what I found was that when I could just acknowledge some of my own good qualities was much easier to appreciate the good qualities in other people, too. I felt more at ease, and I felt more of a sense of kinship with other people instead of getting more caught in comparing mind, which is pretty common. And then the other unexpected thing was that the more I contemplated my own good qualities, the more I recognized that I couldn't really call them mine at all. They didn't belong to me. Some of them had been instilled by my parents. Some came from my teachers, my friends, the Buddha's teachings, my meditation practice. They were conditioned phenomena arising from causes and conditions, just like anything else. So I couldn't really think of them as mine. And I also noticed that just as the Buddha described I felt more at ease and happier and clearer when I was aware of my strengths and not just my weaknesses. So here again, coming back to Gill's orienting us towards wholesome energy, the happiness that comes from being connected to our own good qualities that brings many positive benefits with it. When the hindrances of restlessness and worry and anxiety and remorse are released, it can start one of those positive chain reactions of skillful states that actually occur over and over in the discourses, 
There are many descriptions where acting ethically leads to, quote, the bliss of blamelessness, for example. And often from there, there's a sequence of all kinds of skillful mental states that deepen insight and lead to freedom. So I'd like to share just one example from the suttas of this kind of wholesome chain reaction or upwelling of beautiful states. The language, just to acknowledge, it's a little bit old-fashioned and perhaps some of the terms that you'll hear don't yet make sense. But if you just let the words wash over you, I think you'll get the gist of what it's pointing to. So the Buddha is talking to his personal attendant, Ananda. And Ananda had apparently asked him, what was the point of ethical behavior? What's the point of non-harming? And the Buddha is reported to have told him, Ananda, the purpose and benefit of wholesome, virtuous behavior is non-regret. The purpose and benefit of non-regret is joy. The purpose and benefit of joy is rapture. The purpose and benefit of rapture is tranquility. The purpose and benefit of tranquility is pleasure. The purpose and benefit of pleasure is concentration. The purpose and benefit of concentration is the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. The purpose and benefit of the knowledge and vision of things as they really are is disenchantment and dispassion. And the purpose and benefit of disenchantment and dispassion is the knowledge and vision of liberation. Thus, Ananda, wholesome virtuous behavior progressively leads to the foremost, in other words, to awakening. So may we experience the release of restlessness and remorse, taste the bliss of blamelessness, and find the deepest freedom of heart and mind. Thank you for your attention. Let's just take a few moments of silence together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.